welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Fran Amory, who is Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Bath, an author of Beyond Pro-Life and Pro-Choice, The Changing Politics of Abortion in Britain. The book follows the timeline of the Abortion Act from the 1960s to now. By tracing the evolution of this act and the bills that followed, Fran highlights key points of social change and reveals cultural battlegrounds. The book shows that even now, provision of abortion in Britain is based on assumptions about medical authority and questions that we need to address. Progress is being made, especially in Ireland and Northern Ireland, but this must continue. What's really clear is that battles over the legal status of abortion in Britain has never been a simple question of pro-life versus pro-choice. One of the key questions that came to my mind when I read the book is, when is choice not actually choice at all? Hi, Fran. Hi. Um, I think the approach, the way you've approached the book is really interesting by kind of taking this specific act and following it through decades. Um, by looking in detail at the progress of the act and the bills that follows, it's really clear how social attitudes to, to abortion and women have changed and in many cases haven't changed. Could you talk about um, how you came to write the book and why you decided to write it in this way? Mm-hmm. So when I first started working on this area, which would have been nearly 10 years ago now, actually, in in 2010, what I was really interested in knowing is why we have the Abortion Act that we have. Why hasn't there been more positive progress in this area, given that the Act is really quite problematic from a pro-choice perspective? It doesn't really grant such a thing as a right to choose And we had and still have quite a lot of pro-choice MPs in Parliament. I wanted to know why hadn't they pushed for further change on this issue. And really the explanation to that is only found if we go all the way back to the 1960s when the Abortion Act was being negotiated and we look at the assumptions um, about the role of women in society, also the role of doctors in society, that it's set in place. And it's those assumptions that MPs have had to contend with Right. So I found that sort of tracing the way the Act evolved historically is how we explain where we are now, essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So the way the Act and the bills have been discussed in Parliament over the years obviously reflect and shape society. Can you give some examples of what some of the ways in which the progress mirrors women's social status? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I mean, I know my students are often quite surprised when I tell them that the Abortion Act didn't come into place because of any great feminist ideals about any such thing as a right to choose or women's bodily autonomy or anything like that. It was very much about protecting women who were seen as perhaps living um, in particularly dire social circumstances, overburdened by um, motherhood was one of the phrases uh, that was used, and maybe attempting to restore women to a much more idealised version of motherhood where they were able to parent in what was seen as the appropriate way. So really the Abortion Act was about protecting a particular sort of fragile vision of womanhood and, and what motherhood uh, meant. And it was only later that feminist ideas about a right to choose really started to be discussed in Parliament So by about the 1980s or so, um, feminist ideas were being firmly established in the parliamentary discussion on abortion. Um, 
But at the same time, the backlash against feminism was in full swing. The idea that women were being harmed by feminism, were being harmed by social progress, were burning themselves out, trying to have it all. These were really popular narratives at the time. So as you move into sort of the 1970s, 1980s, you start to see that kind of narrative coming out in discussions about abortion law as well. You start to see anti-abortion MPs talking about something called post-abortion syndrome, um, which is women suffering mentally as a result of having abortions. Um, And this was seen essentially as the price women were paying for being able to exercise their reproductive rights. Um, So that debate obviously is still very much interlinked with these wider discussions about women's role in society. Um, Now we have a resurgent feminism, of course, and we have a resurgent decriminalisation campaign as well, which knowingly plays Mm. on this as well. I'm interested in what you said about how the Act was about protecting motherhood. Mm. Is it, I think we'll go on to it in a bit, but is it about protecting like a certain, a certain mother? You're thinking about a certain certain type of kind of motherhood. I hadn't thought of the Act being introduced, I just... Mm trying to get my head around what they were protecting. Because it wasn't really protecting the actual women, was it? No. It was protecting a certain vision of a certain type of mother. Is that right? Yes. So the act and the discussions around it also had heavy class-based connotation. Yeah. So there was very much an idea of that, I suppose there was a threat. A lot of people discussing the act were very much concerned about the threat of delinquency and delinquent or children being born who would go on to become delinquent teenagers and delinquent adults. And this was blamed on a breakdown of families, a breakdown of motherhood in particular. And one of the concerns of the people behind the act was to try and restore this vision of motherhood. The idea being that either if you stop women having children, if they're going to be the wrong type of mother... Or if you stop women being overburdened by their families being too large, you'd be able to prevent this kind of delinquency from occurring. I see. Mm. Yeah. So kind of not protecting the women at all, but protecting an idealised version of what they exactly they yes. should be. There's a lot in the book about the role of doctors and stereotypes of women. What does the Abortion Act and the bills associated with it tell us about these social roles in particular? I think the relationship between the doctors and the women comes through throughout the book. It's really significant. Absolutely. So what the Abortion Act really tells us is that these two identities are heavily linked. So the more vulnerable women were thought to be, the more perhaps irrational incapable of making their own decisions independently women were thought to be the more justification there was for giving power to doctors over the abortion decision the more justification there was for a very I suppose paternalistic vision of what it meant to be a doctor as somebody Mm. who could guide their patient through making these big choices about their lives Mm. very male and female exactly so the um the identity of the doctor here is heavily masculinized Mm. and it was obviously unthinkable that the doctor might be a woman in these discussions as well yeah yeah and that's all about power as well isn't it and that kind of dynamic the social clause Mm. is something that crops up quite a lot in the book could you talk about that and how I think how it relies on the doctor's judgment of women. Sure, yes. Yeah. So there were multiple iterations, I suppose, of the social clause. 
Originally, if you go back and look at the Silken Bill, which was a predecessor to the Steel Bill, which eventually became the Abortion Act, that made a very explicit reference to the social conditions in which the pregnant woman is living, including the social conditions of her existing children, as a potential justification for an abortion to go ahead. So the social Um, clause is the bit that allows abortions for non-medical reasons. Yes, so, well, that's the argument. Again, this has been controversial. And this original iteration was very controversial in particular due to the idea that it was wrongly imposing a kind of social role on doctors Mm. that was in contravention to their properly medical role. Um, And we we can definitely contest this by looking at um, sociology of medicine, for example, which will rightly point out that doctors have always played a social role uh, in society. But during the passage of the Abortion Act, this was extremely controversial. The argument was that doctors' roles would somehow be polluted um, by this clause. So on the back of this controversy, this clause was eventually revised to one which says instead that an abortion can take place if there is a risk to the physical or mental health of the pregnant woman Mm -hmm. or any existing children in her family, which on the face of it seems like a much narrower clause, but as the um, proponents of the Act argued at the time, uh, the understanding was that health here could be interpreted relatively broadly because... The environment in which we're living obviously can impact on our health. It can impact both on our physical health and on our mental health. Mm. So in practice, this was extremely significant as it gave doctors a very wide scope in which to act and they could be legally protected as long as they had formed the good faith opinion that there was some risk to the physical or mental health uh, of the pregnant woman. Now, originally... I think MPs still intended this to have a relatively narrow application in practice. Um, But the interesting thing about how the um, application of the Act has evolved in practice, um, even though the letter of the law hasn't changed so much since 1967, is that this clause does allow clinics a fairly wide scope to interpret the law fairly liberally. So what we now see is that abortion provision in Britain is actually much more liberal than the original architects of the act had intended in in inserting this clause because of how the clause is defined exactly yes um i guess though still because we have the clause that says that two doctors have to sign off on the decision they would both have to excuse me buy into whatever those social reasons would be wouldn't they yes exactly um and again i think by the people discussing the act originally this was intended as a safeguard against the law being interpreted in a way they saw as being too liberal. But now, mainly thanks due to the work of uh, charitable abortion providers like Mm. the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, they have managed to put the infrastructure in place um, that, I mean, the law can still cause problems for women accessing abortion, but they are able to provide abortion on on a reasonably wide basis. Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Um, I think that... Can you talk a little bit about the two doctors thing sure. and that being part of the original act? It was part of the original act. It was, yes. Because yeah. that's a real clear example. It's almost like two against one, isn't mm-hmm. it? Well, yes, exactly. Um, and this part of the Abortion Act, um, again, was always meant to, I suppose, 
it would involve safe checks and balances on doctors themselves. So one of the concerns oh, okay. of the yeah. detractors of the act was that ooh, a rogue doctor might allow abortions willy-nilly in, yeah. in circumstances that MPs thought would not be appropriate for abortions to take place. So mm-hmm. the idea was that there'd be an extra check here with doctors essentially reviewing uh, each other's work. Um, so, as I said, the actual provision has, has changed substantially since then, but this is still an extra kind of bureaucratic exercise that needs to take place before abortions can be provided. It can slow down the abortion It can process. make it more so difficult, it can, yes. can't it? Um, As much as abortion providers have attempted to do all they can to sort of ameliorate that situation, it's still an extra bit of bureaucracy, you know, an extra bit of red tape, which isn't particularly helpful. And it again plays into this whole gendered idea that women can't take responsibility for themselves. Exactly. Um, oh, goodness, they actually need two doctors to yeah. help them make their decisions for them. Um, this kind of goes on to the next question, actually, about the concept of choice. Mm. Um, and I've, when I read the book, I felt like the concept of choice was really at the heart of the book, and it's the dichotomy between pro-life or pro-choice that Mm. makes it such a fundamental part of the argument um what are your thoughts on how much choice women actually Mm. have maybe back then in the 1960s and now and how that compares yeah I mean the key question here is what do we even mean by choice in the first place so we can interpret choice in a quite narrow legal sense you do you have a legal right to choose or not um but it's increasingly recognised, what well, has been for some time really, by uh, abortion rights movements uh, around the world, that the legal right to choose is fairly meaningless without the ability to exercise that choice in practice, yeah. um, which is something that could depend perhaps on your financial material circumstances. It can also depend on the kind of access you have to abortion services. You know, if you can't actually easily get to a, an abortion clinic, yeah. some women can't then your right to choose is, in practice, severely restricted. It's on paper only, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So in the UK, I'd say there's quite large disparities in access in terms of just being able to get to a clinic. Um, you know, if you live in or you live near a city, it's fairly easy to get to a clinic, but perhaps if you live in a more rural area, it might be more difficult. Um, and that is something that has caused problems, for example, for people seeking early medical abortions where they might need to visit a clinic twice in order to be able to access the abortion. Is it the case that you have to take both pills in the clinic or did that law change? That has changed right. recently, thankfully. Um, it changed in, in Scotland and Wales first. Um, right. And finally, the UK government sort of caught up and um, allowed women in England to undergo early abortions in their homes as well. That having to travel to and from a clinic when your body's going through this. It's exactly. Just, yeah. Just and wrong. there's some really awful, awful stories that have come out of this about um, women starting to miscarry on their journey home, yeah. say on a coach journey home for the clinic, yeah. which is just an absolutely horrible situation to be putting people into. Mm, that's an example of some progress being made. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about the disparities in access around the country is... Um, in terms of different parts of the UK as well. If we look at abortion provision in Scotland or certain parts of Scotland, it can be much more difficult to access a late-term abortion. Um, Often women will have to go to a hospital in England in order to undergo that procedure. We know there are cases of um, women sort of disappearing from the system, not actually ever making it to that 
um, appointment for that procedure in England and just disappearing from the system so we don't even know what happened, whether they accessed an abortion in the end. So in this scenario, the issue of choice is clearly fundamental to gender in a way and women having this right to choose and how that's balanced by like this male doctor figure. What's the link between abortion and gender equality to start with? So I suppose my argument would be that access to abortion is a necessary but not sufficient condition of gender equality. So abortion is, it's extremely symbolic, um, as we know, of the right to both bodily autonomy, but also autonomy over how one chooses to live one's life. So um, just in that regard, access to uh, abortion and contraception as well has really been revolutionary for maybe not all women, but but, but quite a, a, a lot of women. Yeah. And abortion is really significant as well in that it disrupts this, I suppose, traditional idea, traditional association between women and motherhood, the yeah. idea that women will always become mothers or should always become mothers, will inevitably um, become mothers. Abortion actually signifies the right to reject that or to choose how and when that happens. So it's extremely significant in that case. In that sense, I suppose what sometimes worries me, though, about this argument is that it tends to overlook the cases in which or the women for whom the right to access an abortion or abortion itself has been experienced extremely differently. Okay. so we know also that abortion and also contraception can be deployed as weapons essentially against certain women or certain types of women who are regarded as not being fit for motherhood. Um, So if we look at, um, for example, what happens in the United States at the moment, um, in some cases, um, women who've been convicted of a crime, um, particularly uh, black and Latina women, um, have often found their face a choice between a jail sentence or having a contraceptive implant fitted. Wow. Um, So if you tell those women, well, you have your reproductive rights because you could choose to have an abortion Mm. if you wanted one, that's going to seem a bit ridiculous to them because they don't have the really have the ability to decide freely decide what to do with their own bodies so I think we have to be a bit careful when playing up the significance of abortion to also acknowledge that it can be weaponized in this way as well and it's not in itself doesn't have any single necessary meaning it depends on the social circumstances the legal circumstances so just the fact that it exists as a thing is not relevant really it's how it plays out exactly it's used yeah Mm -hmm. I think that goes on to my next question which is about intersectionality um so how does it relate to other types of inequality like class and race and disability rights and that kind of thing how how does that play into the abortion debate and is it considered enough yeah, I'd say we're, we're, we're moving in the direction of considering intersectionality in this debate. I mean, in huge part, thanks to the reproductive justice movement, which began in the United States, which again has pointed out these issues that the right to choose to have an abortion is not the only meaningful reproductive right that matters to a lot of women, particularly black and minority ethnic women, women living in poverty, disabled women... Uh, etc and also pointing out this issue about access to abortion in practice being just as important if not more important than the legal right to have an abortion 
So I'd say especially thanks to the women working within that movement, um, abortion rights advocates have kind of started to pay more attention to intersectionality. Mm. I think in the UK we're perhaps a little bit further behind on that front. Mm. Um, I definitely would say there's been a lot of positive progress in this area. Some abortion rights advocacy groups um, have over the last um, 10 years or so started to do more outreach work with groups of marginalised women, which is a great uh, development. But I would definitely say that intersectionality as a concept hasn't become quite as central to that movement as I think it should be. Mm. So something like sex selection has been in the news quite recently as well. That's yeah. an area, isn't it, where that needs to be considered, I would guess. Exactly. Yeah. And then with, with sex selection, again, this is a, well... It's very controversial, um, but potentially a case, again, of abortion being maybe weaponised against women. And I think the way in which abortion rights, more mainstream abortion rights advocates, if I can call them that in the UK, initially dealt with that, maybe hadn't fully recognised the significance of this. Again, there was a lot of positive development, though, in, in how that kind of campaign evolved. They did start doing much more outreach work with groups like uh, South or Black Sisters, for example, you have South Asian women's organisations yeah. who were able to kind of bring their knowledge of things like sun preference um, into that discussion yeah. and make sure this was um, being properly kind of considered in, in debates. But I do worry a bit that um, I think some of those allegiances, I don't want to say they're fragile, I think they came together with the best will of everyone involved, but I do know that the women's sector in general is so time pressured that it's maybe been quite difficult for them to maintain those those ties. Yes, mm. yeah. Um, we talked about feminism a little bit earlier on, but that's obviously an important area to go back to. What role did feminism play in shaping the debate? I think feminist arguments kind of came in the 1970s, didn't they? Yeah, I'd say feminism's had sort of multiple and contradictory roles in this debate so you know as I said they weren't really present at least in the parliamentary debate in the 1960s even though they may have been made sort of outside of parliament Um, they did start to show up as you say in the 1970s into the 1980s and became much more firmly established in parliamentary debate over Mm. abortion but it was a very I suppose quite cautious feminism that was being expressed at that point because again it was a feminism that was dealing with the realities of the abortion act which as we've said seen is not a feminist act it's a fundamentally sexist act so you see this kind of tension of feminist and pro-choice mps sort of wanting to talk in very positive terms about a right to choose the right to bodily autonomy Mm. but at the same time not wanting to really criticize the abortion act in case it opened the door for more negative attacks on abortion rights. So you get this weird sort of tension between feminist arguments on the one hand and then this idea that actually the Abortion Act is a positive thing which represents the right to choose, which it really doesn't. No, I think that's where your book's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think we do think of abortion as liberating Mm. in a way, but in so many ways it just wasn't. Mm. And even now it's just not sometimes... Um, I wondered when I read the book, I was the example of Nadine Doris and mm. the mandatory counselling after abortion cropped up a couple of times. Um, it almost felt like that was put forward as a feminist argument. Mm. I, I felt like that was quite a good example of this kind of thing somehow. 
Yeah, and I, I found that whole argument very cynical. Um, so Dory's argument was that um, women... Well, first of all, she argued that anyone seeking an abortion should undergo mandatory counselling yeah. um, before they could access an abortion. Eventually after that... Oh, before? Yeah. Oh, OK. But eventually after that received a lot of backlash, she attempted... Um, essentially a new project which was um, to not make that counselling mandatory but um, to make it so that clinics were legally obliged to um, point women in the direction of independent counselling services rather than providing their own counselling which seems like quite an innocuous um, reform on the face of it. And supportive. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly but the intention of it clearly was to undermine abortion providers to try and I suppose instill doubt in their ability to provide counselling objectively and if you look at what abortion providers are doing in this country generally they do actually provide quite good counselling services Um, the Department of Health even has now kind of recognised that there's not a problem there in terms of what services are being offered to um, those seeking an abortion so really it was just about making the public think, oh, these um, abortion clinics aren't able to act, act in an unbiased okay. way. They aren't acting in women's best interests. Um, there's a further kind of narrative here about them being profit-hungry and abusive, mm. um, which this all tied into. And it was very kind of cynical to tie this up in a feminist narrative about yes. women having a right to know um, what an abortion is all about when the actual impact of this would have been to undermine the people who are actually providing abortions in in the first place and make it much more difficult uh, for them to operate. Yeah. It also made me think of this idea, like going back to the 1960s when it was first introduced, women not knowing their own minds. Mm. Not every woman... It's great that counselling is offered, but not every woman is going to need counselling. Exactly. There's an assumption that you are going to need counselling in that kind of argument. Exactly. And it very much ties into, again, these narratives about post-abortion syndrome or post-abortion regret, which um, is actually a very, very rare phenomenon. The vast majority of people who have abortions don't actually regret... No, having them, um, but this tiny percentage of those who do is played up like it's a huge threat. When actually, if we're saying you know we should trust women, that is going to entail that maybe some women will maybe make the wrong choice or regret mm-hmm. those choices. But that is something that comes with the territory of trusting women to make their own decisions about their own lives. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In the book, the chapter in the book about. Um... Technology. So we go through the 60s, through 70s, and looking at those feminist arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you move on to the 1980s and the 1990s and the impact of technology. And this is really interesting as well mm-hmm. because it's, um, you can, I've written here that the fetus becomes more visible and mm-hmm. personified. Can you talk about that and the impact that had? Yeah, so with the growth of the use of fetal imaging technology in that time, that really brought about a revolution in how um, both scientists but also politicians and the public were thinking about and talking about the fetus itself. So there's some really interesting research on this by people like Rosalind Pachetsky, um, essentially showing the way in which the fetus is represented using this technology essentially kind of abstracts it from the body it's occupying. So you have all these images of what essentially seem like fetuses floating in space as if they're completely divorced from any other context, which made it very easy to talk about 
the fetus in terms that completely ignored uh, the pregnant woman. Yeah. Um, So there was a real kind of obsession at this stage as well with the concept of fetal viability. So that's the point in gestation at which the fetus might be able to survive outside the uterus. Mm. And this became a defining principle uh, in this era um, for sort of defining the cutoff date at which after which abortion should no longer uh, be legal. Um, So even again among kind of feminist and pro-choice MPs in these debates, the argument became very much focused on the science of fetal viability to an extent that it kind of eclipsed broader questions about rights, justice, etc., it became almost not about the woman at yes, all. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I interviewed quite a few MPs um, who said, you know, we just didn't think the feminist argument or the rights argument would have a broad resonance. We felt we needed to stick to the science because that was safer. That would convince more people. Mm. It really it shows just the, the ebbs and flows of the whole the whole debate, doesn't it? And how social and cultural changes play into Parliament mm. and what they kind of feed into each other. There was a film you mentioned in the book that I watched a bit of on YouTube called The The Silent Scream. The Silent Scream. And that must be an an example of what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. I watched a little bit of it and it was quite shocking in a way. Mm. Well, obviously it's very shocking because it's about a fetus being aborted, isn't it? Yeah. So it was a film um, created by a US anti-abortion group, Mm. um, again, using fetal imaging technology to show the process of an abortion. And it's really, if you watch it, quite difficult to figure out what's going on. The imagery isn't actually that clear. It's quite blurry. Um, But what you can see is, I think it's the cannula being inserted, and then you see some movement. And the narrator says oh, the baby is trying to escape and is terrified. Obviously, there's no basis on which to make that sort of claim, but it's that kind of narration um, that overlays the imagery and is sort of claiming to be scientific because it's using this technology. It was actually quite powerful. And that, yeah, it must must have been massively influential. It was, yeah. Yeah. Um, Moving on to Ireland now. Mm. Um, Now that the Eighth Amendment has been repealed in the Republic of Ireland and abortion's decriminalised in Northern Ireland. What's the future here and what impact will this have on the law in the UK? Well, hopefully with... In terms of the impact on the rest of the UK, I mean, what is the case now following decriminalisation in Northern Ireland is that Northern Ireland actually has the most liberal abortion law um, out of uh, the four constituent nations um, of the United Kingdom. which is great. Which is... It's it's absolutely brilliant. And... I'm hopeful at least that this will be a catalyst for further change in England and Wales if we can say that, look, abortion has been decriminalised in Northern Ireland um, despite all of the resistance, obviously, um, from Northern Irish politicians and there has been been no negative impact of this. You know, why can't we do this in the rest of the UK? Mm. And as well as that, what's next for the abortion debate more generally? I know there's lots of... um, campaigns and rights groups that you mention in the book Mm. and are we moving from a politics of protection to a politics of liberation or is that still a long 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 way away? Well I think that's definitely where uh, abortion rights advocacy groups have been going in the UK well I'd say in terms of um, those groups they've probably been there for some time they have for a long time been pushing for a much more radical and liberal vision of abortion law than has really been 
sayable in Parliament. But mm. what has really impressed me about the developments of the past few years in Parliament was that that kind of vision is something which now can be expressed in Parliament, which okay. is brilliant. So, you know, when I first started doing interviews for this project, which would have been around 2013, right. I was speaking to MPs and former MPs who were saying, you know, look, I agree that the Abortion Act is not that great, that it's far too restrictive, that it's sexist, but we don't really feel we can do anything about it. We feel it would be too dangerous to try and do something about it. And that has radically changed now. Um, a lot of credit for that, I think, goes to Diana Johnson, mm -hmm. who I know was sort of warned off trying to be too radical in her approach to abortion by other, I think mostly other female MPs okay. in the Labour Party. Um, but she went for it anyway and has shown that actually we don't need to be so cautious in the way we talk about abortion. We can push for more. We can start criticising the Abortion Act and yeah. we can get somewhere with that as well. And that's how you make progress, yeah. isn't it, that way? So, yeah, I'm I'm very hopeful that we can really, I suppose, move on from this old idea that, well, the Abortion Act is broken, but we have to protect it because it's, it's the best we can do. Yeah, hopefully. Mm. Um, my final question... How would society transform if we did have access to safe and legal decriminalised abortion? How would things be different? Ooh, I've come to think about this one for a bit, I think. Um, I mean, it's a very... I suppose it's a very difficult one to answer because I think even if we do dramatically improve uh, our abortion law in across the whole of the UK that's not necessarily going to have the same impact for everyone across the board. So it will take quite a lot to fix those access issues, to make access equal across uh, the country. I do also think that at the same time as making abortion more accessible, decriminalising abortion, we need to simultaneously be having a conversation about... Um, the right to reproduce if you want to or mm. we need to be tackling the stigma being directed at certain mothers whether they're kind of working class mothers um, reliant on welfare whether they're migrant women um, we need to be addressing those simultaneously I think yeah. if we're not addressing those at the same time the impact of decriminalization it will be great for some women for the most privileged women but it won't necessarily be so helpful to more marginalised groups of women. It goes back to that having choice on paper, but yeah, you need to have yeah, that choice quite. in and reality need, as well. And we need to recognise that the right to choose is not just about the right to choose to have an abortion, it's also the right to choose not to have an abortion, which Absolutely. can be, a, for some women, I think, an even more difficult right to exercise. You know, If you have an abortion because you feel... You just couldn't support a child because of your financial situation, even if you want to have a child. Could you really describe that as a free exercise of choice? You know, I don't think you can. Thank you, Fran. That's fascinating and clear that there's still far to go in terms of progress, but it feels like there's hope there. Fran's book, Beyond Pro-Life and Pro-Choice, The Changing Politics of Abortion in Britain, is available on the Bristol University Press website. That's bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.